Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. I'm Joanne. And I'm Kim. And today we have with us Dr. Carolyn Ross, and we are going to be discussing integrative and functional medicine as it relates to your wellness. And Dr. Ross is an integrative and functional doctor, and we're going to have her introduce herself and tell you guys what exactly she does and how it relates to wellness and why is it so important. Well, I'm really happy to be on your show. And I am a medical doctor, a physician who specializes in treating eating disorders and addictions. I also did a fellowship with Dr. Andrew Wiles program in integrative medicine in Tucson, Arizona. And so I include that in my approach. And I think the biggest difference is really looking at the whole person, body, mind, and spirit, and helping people integrate the parts of themselves to be whole and to heal. Yeah, I love that, Dr. Ross. So, so that audience can know an integrative and functional medicine physician. How is that different from a conventional doctor? That's a great question, Kim. First of all, integrative medicine is different than functional medicine, although they share many, many similarities. So my training is really in integrative medicine, although I've done some training in functional medicine as well. But I'll speak to integrative medicine. You know, I was trained just like any other Western trained physician. You know, I went to medical school. I did a residency in preventive medicine. I'm board certified in preventive medicine and in addiction medicine. But somewhere along the line, I began to realize that many of the medical problems that I was seeing in my office had an emotional or psychological component. And I wanted to be able to understand how to help people because I also realized that 90% of what I was seeing had to do with people's lifestyle, whether it be problems with nutrition that led to issues in their medical history or lack of exercise or smoking. I'm sure you guys are familiar with all of those. And those aren't things that in medical school, we're really not trained to address except by using medication. That's why I was attracted to go back to the integrative medicine program to really get a better handle on, you know, how I could work with my patients in a whole person perspective. So in integrative medicine training, we learn about all types of alternative therapies, acupuncture, chiropractic, energy healing, even shamanism. And we also learn about the use of nutritional supplements to treat medical conditions, everything from cancer to diabetes to dementia, and also learn more about nutrition and lifestyle therapies. So that's kind of the overview of where I'm coming from. That's interesting. You know, most of the times when I speak to integrative medicine physicians, they usually have like some kind of history where they themselves were sick and 
it made mm-hmm. them realize that traditional medicine or the traditional route of things is not always the way to go. And it led them to the path of functional medicine or they had a family member. It's not always something personal that I've seen. Well, you didn't ask me about the personal, so I, <laughs> I won't disappoint you because before I went into the integrative medicine program, I had been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and found myself unable to practice medicine for two years. And then going from doctor to doctor to my colleagues, who many of whom I had known for decades and worked with for decades, who really didn't understand what I was going through. And some of them didn't believe I was sick. And so I started exploring alternative therapies on my own and eventually decided to incorporate that into the way my return to medicine after I healed from chronic fatigue syndrome. Wow. And and your experience and other medical doctors' experiences into the functional health space is similar to us who are dietitians, because myself, I'm in the functional medicine or functional nutrition space, and I Uh didn't go into it right out of school. Out of school, I was cookie-cutter, textbook-thinking dietitian until I got sick. And they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And they thought I had lupus. They thought I had rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis, all those other autoimmune type of conditions and the markers and testing that they did everything came back negative because they couldn't find the answers. The answer for them is you're not sick. It's all in your head. And that's one of the things that I focus on in my practice when I speak to my clients is that you are the best expert in you. Don't let people tell you that it's in your head because no one is inside of your body. They don't know how you feel. They don't understand. And so that's what parlayed me into being in the practice that I have. There's the same thing, something personal rerouted my thinking, took me out of that box of cookie cutter thinking. And and now, and I'm in the space of more functional, holistic nutrition. When people say it's all in your head, it's usually a derogatory meaning. However, the more we know about the brain, the more we can say it, it is all in your brain because our experiences affect our brain and how our brain works. And that then affects our risk for different diseases. So I didn't know that 20 years ago when I was first getting sick, but it's become really clear to me now in my practice over the last couple of decades. I totally agree with that. And you mentioned the psychological aspects of treatment earlier on when you were speaking. And that's my next question for you. I find a lot of times when people come to me and I do a lot of gut health therapies And I ask them questions about their history. And a lot of times there's kind of something traumatic that just happened a year ago or two years ago. Somebody died. They were in a major car accident. Something happened a lot of the time. And here they are a couple of years later experiencing all these physiological symptoms that they can't pinpoint. No one can pinpoint where it came from. So what role does intergenerational and past traumas play in your health and wellness, everyone's health and wellness? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's an important question because most people don't really recognize that something that happened to you when you were a child could affect your risk for diabetes 
when you're an adult. You know, it doesn't really make sense if you think about it. But again, if you know about the brain, it does make sense. But let's just talk about trauma first, and then I can go into intergenerational trauma. But trauma that particularly that happens before the age of 18, so we call that childhood trauma or adversity, has been studied with the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study that has over 17,000 people participating, which is truly a massive research study. And what they found is that experiences such as having a parent who has substance use disorder or a mental illness, someone being incarcerated in your family, which is unsurprisingly common in Black families, or being sexually or physically abused or neglected, all of those things increase your risk for over 40 medical conditions, including diabetes, heart disease, cancer, et cetera, as well as mental illness, depression, anxiety, bipolar, and so on. So how does that work? Well, basically, when you experience trauma, it causes what we call toxic stress. That toxic stress then affects the hard wiring of your brain. It actually changes the architecture of the brain. And when that change happens, that toxic stress then causes a change in the expression of certain genes, then we call that epigenetics. For example, if you were sexually abused, that could turn on the gene for depression or for substance use. That then shows up 20 years later, not at the time, of course, because you're a little child, but 20 years later. And that's how that works. So it's toxic stress causes a change in the expression of your genes. And that change then can turn on genes for all of these medical and psychological conditions that show up in adulthood. Wow. And of course, when it does show up in adulthood, most physicians are not going to correlate the two. No. You know, I have an online program for binge eating, food addiction, and emotional eating. And I can't tell you how many times I've interviewed a patient for the program and ask them about their history of childhood trauma. And they say, oh, that happened a long time ago. That doesn't have anything to do with this. And unfortunately, it has everything to do with this. And that's why I try to explain to people that when we're putting patients on diets, a diet is not going to fix their trauma. A diet is not going to fix the change in the expression of genes that cause them to have an eating disorder or a substance use problem. So that's why we keep spinning our wheels with, you know, so many people who are being put on these diets, thinking that that's going to fix the problem when the overeating or the binging is an unconscious solution to the problem. So a child has, doesn't have a lot of resources. If they've gone through trauma, they can reach for food, but they don't have, you know, a sponsor they can call. They don't always have a safe place where they can go to talk to someone about their issues. And so they're going to do what they can to survive. So the eating issue is a survival mechanism and dieting is not going to change that. 
I'm listening to everything that you're saying, Dr. Ross, and my mind and my eyes are really being opened up to realize why integrative and functional medicine doctors and dietitians are not getting the airtime that they need. Because honestly, you know, it's not just a diet. It's not just prescribing a pill. It's really going deep and researching. And these things are not popular. So, you know, when you were speaking about, yeah, they're not. And it's sad. And even when you mentioned something along the lines of doctors telling you, oh, you know, Joanne mentioned it's all in your head. And that's a way to really diminish your credibility as someone who is living in your body and knows how your body feels from a day-to-day basis. I want to take this and I want to look at the Black community just a little deeper. I want to know how common are eating disorders in the Black community? Because the reason why I ask that is the way that it seems to be toted is that it's something that, oh, white people experience. Like, Black people don't experience that. That's a white ethnicity disorder. So in your experience, how common are eating disorders? They are really almost exactly the same as in the white community. Black people get eating disorders at the same rates as white people. Unfortunately, they're not diagnosed as often and they're not treated as often. And so many black women with eating disorders go untreated either for because of economic reasons or because people have told them black people don't get eating disorders. I mean, there's a lot of comedy sitcoms about not sitcoms, but comedy routines about black women don't get eating disorders. You know, we we love our full figured bodies and so on. And, you know, to some degree, that's true. But as the generations become more and more acculturated and then ideal becomes more commonly accepted in the black community, that can cause an increase in certain eating disorders. But beyond that, when we think about the real root cause of eating disorders as being in trauma, just think about the fact that Black little girls and boys have higher exposures and higher risk for trauma than white children, than Asian children. And so If the root cause is in trauma, then I think eventually we may even see a higher rate of eating disorders in Black women once people are starting to actually look for that and diagnose it accurately. Let's talk about the Black body for a second, because you mentioned that, you know, Black women are a little more voluptuous in certain areas. So does eating disorders have a physical appearance or can someone with a voluptuous body with curves have one as well? Because I think society is just skewed on their vision of someone that has an eating disorder. Well, yeah, that's a good distinction because when you say eating disorder, most people think anorexia, someone starving themselves or bulimia, but actually binge eating disorder is more common than anorexia and bulimia combined. So I'll just say that again, there are more people with binge eating disorder than with anorexia and bulimia combined. I think eventually weight is not going to be part of the diagnostic criteria of eating disorders because honestly, it has nothing to do with weight. It has to do with this root cause being trauma. And then how the person responds to trauma may vary. They may starve themselves, they may binge and purge, or they may binge emotionally or have food obsessions, et cetera. 
but it really goes back to the trauma. And there's obviously a genetic component as well. It's like your mother had an eating disorder like anorexia, you are much more likely to have anorexia or bulimia than someone who didn't have a mother with that. But again, I think we need to look deeper, as you said, into the issue. You know, when you were speaking, I was remembering a friend of mine a couple of years back. He told me he was adopted. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, I never knew that. And he shared something with me. He said when he was two years old, he was adopted. And he kept asking his adopted mother, are we going to have dinner to eat tonight? Is it okay if I eat this? Is it okay if I eat that? And I was like, you know, I didn't even put two and two together that the trauma that he experienced as a toddler, you know, may have had an impact on his health status today. And it's just really mind blowing the fact that brown and black boys and girls do have more trauma than any other ethnicity, any other race. Like these are things that is, is not found in the literature because We don't have literature on our populations, much, much literature, I should say. And we're talking about all kinds of trauma, including race-based trauma. Because as you know, there's the day-to-day microaggressions, there's name-calling. I mean, I remember when my oldest son was, I think, eight years old, and we moved to Los Angeles out into, you know, the suburbs, and we were probably not the only black family, but certainly the only black family that we knew. We we didn't know any other black families in our neighborhood. And he went up to the park to play and someone called him the N-word and he came home. And what is that? Why, why are they calling me that? And we had to have that talk with him. And so I think when we look at trauma in the black community, we need to not just look at, you know, the things that the ACE study is studying, but they also are now studying things like trauma, being poverty, being food insecurity, as you were talking about your friend, that's obviously he experienced food insecurity. That's a traumatic experience. And also just lack of opportunity, lack of ability to feel safe in your neighborhood. All of those are now being studied by the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. I grew up in the 90s, Dr. Ross, and I'm thinking about it. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. It's not something that you heard in our community at all. And being the correlation that you just put to us, that Black communities have more trauma occurring than other communities, it's mind-blowing that even myself as a health professional, I didn't put the two together that, yeah, we most likely have a lot of eating disorders Uh in our community. Now, the problem lies in the fact that we also didn't have access to insurance, access to Uh medical assistance, mental health therapies in the last 20 years to even be diagnosed with eating disorders. So, Have you seen an increase in the last 20 years, an an increase in people reporting, let me clarify, in people reporting their eating disorder diagnosis or eating disorder diagnosis increasing? And if you have noticed it, why do you think it is now more? Yeah, I I think it's just more awareness now, like you're saying, that people are starting to wake up to the fact that. Well, first of all, not all Black women are in curvy bodies. 
so we can't say that we have one ideal, but it has been assumed in the literature and, and in anecdotal reports that Black women love their curvy bodies. And that is not always true. You know, the African diaspora is not everyone has the same body type. So there are different ways in which people respond to the experiences that they have. But I think the awareness is increasing. I've been speaking on this topic with a couple of colleagues of mine at the eating disorder conferences for about the past five years. And people are like, oh, you would generally go to an eating disorder, like a national or international eating disorder conference. And there would never be a topic on black women with eating disorders. Never, which is shocking when you think about it. And so doing those talks over the past five years, uh, people have come up to us and I know there's increased awareness, increased demand for, you know, talks on this topic. And so I think that is helping. But what is missing, as you mentioned, is the access to insurance. And that's why things like universal health insurance are so important for black and brown communities because we're the ones who are you know most likely to not be able to get insurance to not be able to go into a treatment center and you know honestly I've had that experience within my own family multiple times where we've had one of my nieces or nephews or even one of my own brothers I have two brothers with who have had severe addiction issues. And you try to get them into a treatment center and the treatment centers are $30,000 a month. What? Oh, yes. I don't know even many middle-class families that can afford that. I thought you were about to say $30,000 for six months, but a month? Oh, no. no a month. Wow. When I worked at Sierra Tucson, the eating disorder program there was $65,000 for six weeks. Yeah, I've heard of those extravagant prices before. Many of them are now taking insurance, but there are still a lot of us who don't have insurance, can't afford insurance. I think that's the heartbreaking part is there are many. That's one of the reasons why I decided to develop an online program for binge eating disorder, because I was seeing families mortgage their houses, take money out of their retirement, you know, taking out loans that they were never going to be able to pay back to help their children who had either substance use disorders or eating disorders. And I just got to a point where I just felt, you know, this is really unfair. So I developed this telemedicine program where we meet on Zoom and it's a lot less expensive to do it that way than to have a brick and mortar treatment center where you have people on staff and all that stuff. I think a lot of times the problem is the lack of understanding of the eating disorder definition, because I think people often think of eating disorders as just anorexia. And the thought of someone who is living in the Black community who doesn't have access to food, who is in a food desert, like, why would you not be eating? I think that's the correlation Mm -hmm. everyone has, because they're only thinking about the anorexic aspects of eating disorder, they don't understand the other parts of what eating disorders can be. Yeah. And I I think the biggest lack of understanding is how much 
an eating disorder can take over your life and how much distress it causes in a person's life. A mother may have had periods where they had eating disorder type behaviors, but they quote unquote grew out of it. But if you truly have an eating disorder, it has a dramatic influence on your life, your relationships, your body image, your sense of well-being, your quality of life. You know, it takes over and people spend 70, 80 percent of their time, energy, thought processes on obsessing about food or about their bodies. And it's a miserable way to live. It's not just about appearance, which is not what it's about at all. But a lot of people think, well, just push away from the table or just exercise more. And that's not going to stop the binge eating disorder, for example. So we really do need to do that deeper work and work on the trauma, the past, and learning new skills and being able to be authentically who you are and who you were meant to be because an eating disorder and trauma in particular can hijack a person's potential in life. And I talk about that in my TED talk because I think I've seen it in my own family where trauma has hijacked people's potential and they never quite are able to get their lives back on track. I know you wrote a book about treating eating disorders in Black women. Yeah, well, be transparent. I didn't write the book. I wrote a chapter in the book. It's an anthology. So my chapter is on intergenerational and historical trauma and eating disorders. But the book is called Treating Black Women with Eating Disorders. And it's a great book because it's the only book that really addresses this issue for Black women. We have tons of books on treating eating disorders, which don't take any cultural competence into account. So it's a historical book because it's focusing on, you know, helping clinicians and others, dietitians, whoever wants to read the book, understand how to treat Black women with eating disorders. And tell us the name of the book one more time, please. Treating Black Women with Eating Disorders. came out about a year ago, so it's still pretty new. And it's been very well received. And I think, like I said, it's the first of its kind. So an important book. Yeah, I think something like this is definitely needed in medicine, especially for the dietitian who, I mean, over about 80% of the profession of dietitians are white women. So I think a book like this gives a whole entire different perspective. And as you said, you know, it's the cultural perspective as well, seeing that, you know, now the profession is realizing like, hey, you know, there's all these different cultures that we have to take into consideration, their food choices and their preferences. It's not just simply about eat the quinoa and yeah, um, all of these, <laughs> eat the kale and all of these other quote unquote, superfoods that the media is pushing, like keep cultural foods in the diet, even for someone that has an eating disorder. I always speak with one of my friends who is one of the editors of that very book. And she jokes about how if somebody puts a piece of pie in front of you and it's an orange pie, like pumpkin pie, a black person may look at that and think it's sweet potato pie. And be very disappointed when it's pumpkin pie. <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, I remember ordering, uh, they, they had this menu at a breakfast place and it said eggs and greens. And I was like, oh my God, I can get greens in this restaurant. And I don't know if you can guess, but the eggs came with uh, some arugula on the side. And I was like, wait a minute, those aren't greens. I mean, they are green, but they're not greens. <laughs> don't be saying greens unless you mean greens. <laughs> right. So, Dr. Ross, I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, but just for a reiteration, because it deepens the impression, as they say, the signs and symptoms that someone should be looking for or pay attention to when it comes to food-focused addictions, and if there are any differences when it comes to Black communities or Black persons versus white persons. Yeah, I think when we start with thinking about anorexia, the main criteria has to do with inability to maintain weight that is within the normal range. But I would really prefer to focus on the behaviors, which is restricting foods. Sometimes people restrict whole categories, like they don't want to eat carbohydrates or they avoid all fats. They are just as obsessed with restricting as People who have binge eating are obsessed with binging. So the behavior is is really the thing that causes the problem. And in anorexia, in the old days, we used to say that you would lose your menstrual cycle. That doesn't happen so much anymore. So that's been taken out of the criteria. And we also know that boys and men can get anorexia. So obviously that doesn't apply. But then when you go into bulimia, the behavior that is common is the binge and the purge. And purging can be through self-induced vomiting, the use of diuretics or laxatives, and also compulsive over-exercising. But people with bulimia, like those with anorexia, will also avoid social situations because they don't want people to be judging how much they're eating or the fact that they're not eating if they're anorexic. And then when you go to binge eating disorder, it's the same as bulimia, but without the purging. So there's binging, which is eating a large quantity of food within a short period of time, or eating more than what would normally be expected is a normal quantity of food. And then there's just the constant self-evaluation in all the eating disorders. The self-evaluation is based on your size or shape. So if, if you get on the scale in the morning and the number is what you want, then you have a great day ahead of you. If the number on the scale is not what you want, then your whole day is messed up. And you go into a deep depression over the fact that the number is not what you want. So that self-evaluation and then the body image focus for anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating, there's a lot of body image issues, body dissatisfaction, body hatred, lack of body acceptance. And again, that body image kind of drives a lot of the mood and the anguish and distress that people experience. Yeah, this is so interesting, you know, getting this information from, you know, just a different lens altogether. Because, you know, I think as dietitians, we 
we have an understanding of what eating disorders are and how they can impact someone. But, you know, just getting it through the lens of, well, for people of color that have trauma, that are going through this and going through that, it, it's a whole different ballpark, a whole different ballpark. So, Dr. Ross, if one of the members of our audience want to connect with you, how can they do so? Yeah, the best way is just through my website, which is carolynrossmd.com. That's C-A-R-O-L-Y-N-R-O-S-S-M-D.com. And on the website, I have my own podcast. And if they're interested in finding more about my approach to treating eating disorders, I talk a lot about that on my podcast. And I also am offering a free copy of my book, the Food Addiction Recovery Workbook to listeners of your podcast. I pay for the book, but they pay for the shipping, just to be clear about that. But in that book, it takes people through the processes that I use in working with my patients directly. So it's been a very popular book, and I'm happy to give that free copy away. Oh, thanks so much. I'm pretty sure they'll appreciate that. And for anyone that's listening, if you are interested in receiving this free workbook, just go ahead and leave a five-star review of this podcast episode. And we will definitely enlist you guys in the running to receive that free workbook. But everyone, thank you so much once again for listening to this podcast. If you know anyone that has an eating disorder, definitely reach out to Dr. Ross. She is a wealth of knowledge and she really just wants to help. So remember to give us five stars and share this podcast episode with your friends, your family members, and also your coworkers. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having me.